God's grace, peace, and mercy be with you on this midweek of Lent 2, through Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the low points in my previous career came just a few years after it started. My supervisors had decided to put me up for a, uh, an Outstanding Maintenance Technician Award, and I won it. And the runners-up and I were to be congratulated and given our plaques at a breakfast banquet held in our honor. My supervisor said, 8 a.m., be at the NCO club in dress uniform. Well, not a problem. Except that the base had just come off a three-day exercise where most of us maintenance folks had been working 12-hour shifts. And for me, I, was, I had worked the night shift, so I was transitioning back to day shift. And on the morning of the awards banquet, as everyone was assembling at the club, finding their assigned seats at the banquet table, There I was at home, still in bed, sound asleep. My alarm had indeed been set, and it went off, but I slept right through it. I awoke to the sound of someone pounding on my door. I groggily got up and answered it, and there was my supervisor standing there all dressed up for me. And I'm standing there with bedhead and morning mouth. He didn't say a thing. Just stood there, looked at me. He knew what had happened. He later told me he was worried that I hadn't shown up for the event, uh, something I was not known to do. But he was relieved I was okay, disappointed that I had slept in. I had barely enough time to get myself together, throw on my dress blues, and get to the club in the nick of time to walk up to the podium and receive my plaque. I missed the breakfast, however. It was an embarrassment to me and my colleagues. But some good did come out of it. I wasn't the only one expected to be there who had overslept. The officer in charge of bringing the awards to the club had also overslept that morning and barely made it in time himself. Uh, I heard later that the wing commander made a decision to not have the awards banquet right after coming off of a three-day combat readiness exercise. But I'll bet that you've had a similar experience, being so tired that you can't fight fatigue and sleepiness so much that, uh, you know, you maybe had fallen asleep in a meeting or failed to get up for work on time. We all should be able to identify with Peter, James, and John as they nodded off and overslept in Gethsemane while Jesus steadfastly watched and prayed to his father. Did that man ever sleep? It had been a busy, exciting, scary, confusing roller coaster week for the disciples. So no wonder they had sleepy eyes and just needed to see the insides of their eyelids for a while. Now who knows if Peter, James, and John had gotten any shut eyes since they had heard the sermon from Jesus about staying awake and watching for the last day. Yeah, maybe they had taken that quite literally. On top of that, what could be more sleep-inducing than watching somebody else pray? You know, watching Jesus go off into the distance and, I mean, and as far as their own praying went, well, haven't you ever nodded off during prayer? 
They reclined on the soft grass in the garden. The cool night air was perfect for sleeping. A nap was inevitable, right? Indeed, it was. It was a, it was sinful <laughs> that they didn't do as Jesus told them. They let him down. They fell asleep on the job. But let's be honest, we would have too. If we'd had been in their shoes. But Lent is not a time for self-righteousness and looking down on the disciples for their failures. It happened the way it had to. And this little scene in Mark teaches us to identify sinful humans and believers, even believers, as sleepyheads whose willing spirit cannot overcome the weakness of the flesh. On the other hand, this scene in Mark also identifies Jesus as the Lord of Israel who neither slumbers nor sleeps, whose eyes were set only on doing God's will. When it came time for all righteousness to be fulfilled and all of the sin of the world to be paid for, it had to be Jesus and only Jesus. He had to be the one, the only one awake to persevere through the home stretch of his active obedience, to suffer the pangs of hell in his passive obedience, and then to sleep the sleep of death in the tomb for all of us, for our salvation. Now, tonight's uh, passion reading that I read from uh, Mark 14, 32 to 42 places before our eyes the depths of woe Jesus would suffer for us. We see him in the garden of Gethsemane, sorrowful and troubled. You may have seen the picture when I showed you my pictures from Israel. Uh, you may have seen it's not, a big, it's not a big place. It's separated by a road and there are two, two an east end and a west end of it, but it's, it's not very big yet probably a little larger in his day, he went in there. It was quiet. The weight of the world's sins pressed mightily down upon his shoulders in that somewhat isolated place at the time. He fell upon his face in weakness and trembling, begging, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And the cup Jesus was speaking of was the cup of his father's wrath against all the sin of the world. God's wrath in his, is his unmitigated, unmitigated anger, a furious outpouring of condemnation and eternal separation from him. Who would want that? Jesus didn't want to drink from that cup. Perfect, sinless, holy Jesus, whose will was truly perfect, prayed that he would not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. And he knew that it was possible for his father to change, well, to change things. And this shows us that death and hell are not good or desirable for God and for humans. You know, if somebody wants to argue with you that, oh, well, God, you know, you don't hear too many people argue this nowadays, but, you know, God, God's wrath, God wants to kill everyone. God wants to destroy everything. Well, um, Jesus didn't want to uh, take a drink of that cup, did he? He didn't want that. 
death, decay, and eternal suffering was not God's plan for humanity. Those are consequences of Adam's fall, which, in, which involved us. Except for Jesus. He was sinless. He didn't merit death. He didn't deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath. So his prayer certainly wasn't cowardly or faithless, but was the language of faith in the God for whom all things are possible. Notice Jesus didn't stop with, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me. He continued, Yet not what I will, but what you will, Father. Again, he prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And a third time, he prayed the same prayer. And then the Father answered his son's prayer. While it was possible for the Father to to remove the cup, the Father's will was for Jesus to suffer to spare you and me. The Father answered Jesus' prayer by giving his Son the strength to accept his good and gracious will, and the Son willingly went into captivity when Judas showed up to betray him. Moments later, Jesus said that all this was done to let the Scriptures be fulfilled. Surely the scripture recorded in Isaiah 53 is running in the background here, right? There the suffering servant of the Lord is said to be stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Isn't there a hymn we have in that as well? Yeah. For our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of God's people, even though he had done no violence and no lies were upon his lips. Why all this punishment on the innocent victim? Isaiah writes, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The father willed to crush his own son and make him an offering for the guilt of our sin. Those of us who are our parents cannot even begin to wrap our minds around how the Father could love us sinners enough to pour out His wrath against His own Son. It torments us to see our own children suffer. It's beyond our comprehension. How could God kill His own Son? Nevertheless, the Lord has done this to save us from sin, death, and everlasting condemnation. We simply trust His Word which says that his good and gracious will was to love us by sacrificing his only begotten son. But now also remember, the father eternally loves his son. And Isaiah's prophecy didn't stop with the death of Jesus. It pointed towards the resurrection. When Jesus appeared to the disciples and gazed upon them with living eyes and said, Peace be with you. When he said this, their eyes looked upon his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. His nail-marked hands speak of God's goodwill towards you and all sinners. Peace be with you, he says. The scars on his hands reveal the goodness or the good and gracious will of God. That peace between God and man has been made by him who was delivered up for our sin And was raised for our justification. Through all of this. Jesus had eyes only for his father's will. And through this fulfilled what he had told his disciples. 
in John. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The good and gracious will of God is that you set your eyes on the Son, believe in Him, and have eternal life as a free gift. So with that good news in mind, when you sleep, and when you oversleep, remember, each morning, when your eyes eventually wake up, remember what He has done for you. And the day that He has set before you, And when your eyes eventually go to sleep in death, be confident that they will awaken to everlasting life in your resurrection. Amen. May the peace of God, which surpasses all human understanding, keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.